My family, the family I come from, the family I was born into, we have a president. It's my sister Kathy. She's not the tallest, she's not the oldest, she doesn't talk the most, but she has proven herself to be very presidential for our needs. Um, recent duties for her have been that she arranged a photographer for our parents' 50th wedding anniversary. She arranged hotel rooms near a hospital where my dad had a surgery. Those kinds of presidential things. But the most amazing thing that she's famous for is this eight-year run on the beach in North Carolina where my parents, my three siblings, their spouses, my eight nieces and nephews, and my husband Nick and I would just show up and Kathy would have done everything. She got all the groceries, she rented kayaks, she arranged for really great rental houses, and there we were to enjoy the week together. And I'll tell you, it went great until one morning my brother Mark woke up and he began to complain that his mattress was lumpy. And throughout the day, he, he planted little seeds of discontent. And then it just so happened it was his night to cook, and he put on this buffet that had special items in it for all of us. He really catered to our own likings. And when he knew we were full from this wonderful meal, he walked into the middle of the room and he announced to all of us his intentions to overthrow Kathy as president. Choose me and there will be no more lumpy mattresses. Choose me and we'll get a beach house in the ritzy section. And then, no kidding, my nephew Jonathan, who was like eight or nine years old at the time, grabbed a stool, brought it over, climbed on top of it. Choose me and we'll have McDonald's Happy Meals every day. Choose me and we're all going to the water park. Well, being the civilized group of people that we are, we knew it was time to have an election. Kathy had never really been officially elected. She had just declared herself president. So we sent Mark, my nephew Jonathan, and our incumbent, Kathy, out of the room, and the other 15 of us looked at each other, rolled our eyes, and then somebody said, all those in favor of Kathy, raise your right hand. Okay, my sister-in-law, who is married to Mark... Raised her right hand. <laughs> that same sister-in-law who is Jonathan's mother raised her right hand. All 15 of us raised our hands. We weren't dummies. We'd go into the future with Kathy as the president of our family. Now here's the thing. My brother wasn't doubting her ability to lead. He was trying to stage a coup against her. But we passed the resolution, and Kathy would remain president of our family. We continue on now in this series where we're investigating questions, deep questions. Why would God send anyone to hell? What happens when I die? What's going on when we pray? And today we come to the question, what are we to do with our doubts? What are we to do with our doubts? As we dive in 
let's look at a couple definitions. Doubt, to be uncertain about. Consider questionable or unlikely. Hesitate to believe, to distrust. Be undecided in opinion or belief. Maybe you're here and you have not actually made a decision for Christ. You're wrestling. You have some doubts. We would anticipate you wouldn't make that decision lightly. And maybe you're here and you are someone who has committed to Christ, but if you're honest, you have doubts. Will God take care of my children? Can he truly forgive the sin I've committed? If I obey God, will I forfeit all the fun there is in life? And if God is good, why did he allow, however you might finish that sentence, these are a few of the doubts we might have, and these are the things we're talking about. When we face these doubts, they can take us to some very healthy places. But there are other things that we might call doubts that really, truth be known, are rebellious or just flat-out cynicism. Let's say I grab these two sections of people and I espouse my new doctrine and I say, come on, come out the back with me. We'll forget that there's truth and we'll go our own way. That's not what we're talking about. We're using the word doubt when we talk about the honest process or struggle. The second word, resolution. A formal expression of opinion or intention. A determination, the act or process of resolving, a solution. We cannot manufacture resolution to our own doubts. Only God can bring resolution for our doubts. So when we talk about looking to God, we're talking about looking to him to bring the resolution that we long for. So doubt and resolution... What are we to do with our doubts? What are we to do with our doubts? The book of Jude, next to last book in the New Testament. We're going to spend just a minute there. It's page 1,213 in the Pew Bibles. Jude describes himself as a servant of Jesus. And he writes in this very, very brief letter, instruction for the church. In verse 3 he writes, Dear friends, although I was very eager to write to you about the salvation we share, I felt I had to write and urge you to contend for the faith that was once for all entrusted to the saints. So it's like he's saying, at first I thought I was just going to write a letter and it would be this feel-good encouragement because we share this bond. Jesus has saved us. But as he explains, contending for the faith, preserving the faith, overtook him, and so his letter shifts, and those are the instructions he gives. How do we contend for the faith? And in verse 22, we read, Be merciful to those who doubt. Among the instruction he gives for the preservation of the faith, be merciful to those who doubt. 
He wrote these words maybe 30 to 50 years after the death and resurrection of Jesus. The apostles are entering into their golden era. And people who never spent time physically with Jesus are filling up the church. Sort of like us. And the instruction is given, be merciful to those who doubt. Let me ask, if you're here this morning and there are doubts swirling around, would it be helpful to you if you knew mercy would be extended to you? And maybe you're here and and the doubts don't happen to be swirling right now. Let me ask you, can you even imagine the impact your life could have if you extended mercy to those who doubt? At Salem Alliance, we long to live this out. We have all sorts of groups, small groups, medium-sized groups, um, being able to connect with others and journey together. We have a ministry called Foundations, wherein a question and answer investigation format, adults from all over the place are able to learn and build that healthy foundation for a life of faith. Maybe you've been told that a good Christian would never doubt. I would urge you to relax. Jude isn't glorifying doubts. He's just aware of the reality in the human condition. And maybe you and I should even give mercy to ourselves when we doubt. If we hide in shame at the first notice of the doubt, we're far less likely to confront the doubt, to work through the doubt. And a doubt untended can become a roadblock to faith. But a doubt properly dealt with can actually become a doorway through which a much deeper faith can emerge. Scripture is full of stories about those who doubted. God didn't hide these people from us. It's not like he saw the Bible after it got written and then tore all the pages out that weren't the golden moments in people's lives. In fact, Scripture displays doubters to us. We'll begin with Peter. One of the first disciples of Jesus, a fisherman recruited right off the beach by Jesus to go and fish for the souls of men. We have no reason to believe that Peter had any special training. He just received the training that he got as he followed Jesus. Matthew chapter 14, page 970 in your pew Bibles. Peter has been traveling with Jesus and the disciples. Miracles are being performed, parables are being told, and the 5,000 have just been fed. And we pick up with Matthew chapter 14, verse 22. Immediately, Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to the other side, while he dismissed the crowd. After he had dismissed them, he went up on a mountainside by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone, but the boat was already a considerable distance from land, buffeted by the waves because the wind was against it. During the fourth watch of the night, Jesus went out to them, walking on the lake. 
when the disciples saw him walking on the lake, they were terrified. It's a ghost, they said, and cried out in fear. But Jesus immediately said to them, Take courage, it is I. Don't be afraid. Lord, if it's you, Peter replied, tell me to come to you on the water. Come, Jesus said. Then Peter got down out of the boat, walked on the water, and came toward Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid, and beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Immediately, Jesus reached out his hand and caught Peter. You of little faith, Jesus said. Why did you doubt? It's almost funny. Peter walked on water, and Jesus didn't even comment about that. But he started to sink, and Jesus linked the sinking to doubt. How far would Peter have walked if he hadn't taken his focus off Jesus? Who knows? But it was then and only then that he began to sink. Peter doubted it's true. But think about this. Who could claim they walked on water that day? Jesus and Peter. The other guys sitting in the boat, maybe they were warm and dry. They didn't get called out as doubters. But they didn't walk on water either. What if there's a link between life on the edge and doubt? Peter doubted, yes, but Peter walked on water. And I bet if you or I climbed out of the boat and took a few steps, we'd probably freak out too. But then imagine sitting there dripping wet. How exhilarating would it be? I'd grab my phone, I'd call somebody. You're not going to believe this, I just walked on water. Three or four steps. Think about it. Have you ever noticed when God carries us through difficult things, how it grows our faith? If our faith was never stretched, we probably wouldn't ever doubt. But when we doubt and we look to God for the resolution, we grow. We mature. Two chapters later, Peter describes Jesus as the Christ, the Son of the living God. His faith is growing. It's very obvious he's coming to know Jesus better. And then in John 6, many of the followers of Christ are turning away and they're, they're no longer following. It was getting difficult. And Jesus turns to the 12 and says, are you going to go away too? And Peter in John 6, 68 says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We believe and know that you are the Holy One of God. The day of doubt led to increased faith. There was no shame in it for Peter. It seems there was only growth. He'd spend the rest of his life stepping out for the cause of Christ. There'd be more opportunities to doubt. We know he had times of failure. But doubts properly directed pointed him to God. And at that time when faith is stretched, when 
everything we've previously believed we understood, when all of that is challenged, when we realize we don't have it all figured out, it can be at that very moment that doubts creep in and want to get a grip of our hearts. And at that moment, do we throw in the towel? Or do we look to God to meet us? Peter could have been so ashamed that he refused to cry out. It's obvious he knew he was doubting. That's why he yelled. Had he refused to cry out, would he have drowned? Peter had doubts, but at the end of the day, he walked on water. What's the boat you find yourselves in this morning? The challenge is there before you to get out and walk on water. Maybe it's your marriage. Maybe it's at work. Maybe it's the pain of an unanswered prayer. Maybe you're about to lose your house. Maybe it's a diagnosis of some sort. The doubts creep in and you wonder if God is able. You'll wonder if God cares. The storm is raging and you're sunk without him. Peter cried for help. And Jesus saved him. What are we to do with our doubts? Elijah, Old Testament, the book of 1 Kings. He's running for his life. There's a bounty on his head. He's going to go hide in a cave. He honestly believes he's the only one following God left on planet Earth. And in the midst of that, he has this conversation with God. And he expresses himself honestly. Then there's this earthquake, this wind, this fire. Imagine the chaos. Imagine the noise, the distraction. And right in the midst of that, God approached Elijah's doubts in the form of a gentle whisper. Maybe there's a link between doubt and growth honest expression and maturity. Have you left room in your doubts for God to approach you with just a gentle whisper? What are we to do with our doubts? The Gospel of Mark chapter 9, there's this guy who honestly says to Jesus, help me with my unbelief. How authentic is that? Jesus, help me with my unbelief. What are we to do with our doubts? Maybe the most famous doubter of all times, Thomas, one of the 12 disciples. He was there during all the excitement of the ministry years. He was there at the Last Supper. He wasn't far removed when Jesus is arrested, crucified, treated like a common criminal. Jesus is now risen from the dead and he's appeared to just a few people. And we come to John chapter 20, page 1075 in the Pew Bible. 
John chapter 20, beginning in verse 19. On the evening of that first day of the week, when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Verse 24. Now Thomas, called Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But Thomas said to them, Unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand in his side, I will not believe it. A week later, Jesus' disciples were in the house again and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here. See my hands? Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to Jesus, My Lord and my God. Maybe Thomas was doubting that Jesus really would come back to life as he had promised. Maybe Thomas believes, well, they got him and they'll be coming after us next. Maybe Thomas is doubting the whole deal. But when Jesus showed up to him, all he could do was say, my Lord and my God. And here's a shocker for you. The text doesn't actually say that Thomas touched. It doesn't say that he didn't. But the text doesn't say that Thomas did what he had boldly declared he had to do in order to believe. Thomas had doubts and he thought he knew exactly what would have to happen in order for him to move through the doubt. But maybe he was wrong. Thomas's friends had already seen Jesus and they told him, they tried to convince him, but there was no convincing Thomas. Convincing is up to God. Regardless of our feelings, regardless of the options that might abound to us, I wonder, have you and I left room for Jesus to show up to us? Not necessarily in the way we would prescribe to him, but in the way he knows is best. What are we to do with our doubts? I feel like we're actually being called to a really scary place. Go to the one we're doubting. The one we're struggling to trust. Go to him anyway. Today, I speak to you from the fog. But one day at a time, my husband and I keep taking our doubts to God. We look to him for resolution. I want to quickly bring you into the story, and if you'll bear with me, I think it will make sense in the end. 
Last May, I had flown to Colorado Springs. I was going to speak to a group of women there. It was to be a very quick trip, go and come right back. Um, but it wasn't an easy trip at all. I got stranded in an airport. My luggage was lost. I got to the hotel very late. I had a Caesar salad that I think was a room service leftover. And some women ran to Target and bought me pajamas. And then, at about 3.30 in the morning, the front desk at the hotel cheerily rang my room to let me know my luggage had been found. I got literally almost no sleep. I woke up grumpy and tired. I gave the message I had gone there to give. I had lunch, and I returned to the airport. Before boarding the plane, I made a determination. I'm going to talk to nobody. I'd pretend to read a book. I'd pretend to sleep. But grumpy and aloof were my rights, and I was clinging to them. But... Picture the scene when I was trapped in the middle seat between a really friendly lady and a guy that filled his space. <laughs> I felt like there's no need for me to chat. I'm never going to see these people again. But there was something about this nice, older lady before long, as she was talking to me, she told me that she had grown up in Ohio and moved to Oregon in her 20s. That's exactly like me. She proceeded to tell me that her husband had already died, but they had been married for 40 years and their wedding anniversary was June 20th. That's my anniversary with my husband, Nick. And it was more than coincidental when she told me about the Alliance Church she used to attend, and it was one where I had had a job interview before coming to Salem Alliance. Right then, the baggage cart comes up the aisle, and we get distracted, and I go back to my book. I wanted to be grumpy and aloof because they were my rights. But my heart was softening. Lord, you're cracking me up here. You got Ohio, you got June 20th, you got this whole alliance thing going. So I drink my juice, I fiddle with my pretzels, and I realize I'm being drawn to this woman. Before long, I turned back to her and I said, well, you mentioned a little bit ago, after your kids were raised, you went back to work. What sort of work did you do? And she got this big smile on her face when she told me that she had worked in special needs preschool. You could tell she had a passion for what she did. Hmm, I said, that's interesting. What was your favorite thing about that? Without hesitation, she said, oh, little boys with autism. I continued my pleasantries with her on the outside. But on the inside, my soul had just been reached. And all I could do was shout, my Lord and my God. I didn't have the emotional capacity to tell her what was going on in my life, but God and I knew. Back home, Nick and I were facing the incredible difficulty of learning more about autism because our young twins, all the teachers and therapists who work with them, believe that's where Daniel and Joshua are. 
That day on the airplane, I was a lot like doubting Thomas. Heal my boys. I felt there was one way for God to prove himself. Touch the nail-scarred hand. He could only prove himself that way. I didn't realize that I was putting God in a box. The God who created my boys, the God who gave us those boys, the God who created everything that is, the God who said grass would be green and sky would be blue. I knew all those things about him and still, I'm trying to fit him in a box. I was wrong. Don't misunderstand me. God is capable of taking the difficulty away, and we pray for that. But somehow, my little miraculous encounter at 30,000 feet when I was stuck between the nice lady and the big guy, somehow, that broke through to me. God didn't miss anything. Ohio, June 20th, the Alliance, it was like he was saying, Susan, I have been with you every step of the way. I think it was my gentle whisper. And then when he brought special needs preschool and autism, I think he was telling me, and I'm going to be with you every step of the way. All I could do was say, my Lord and my God. He had shown up to me, not in the way I would have prescribed, but he had shown up to me. It was God himself meeting me at my point of need. He knew my doubts and fears, and he was there with me in the middle of them. And I'm learning that maybe that's what I actually need for him to just show up to me. I don't know what each one of you brings to the table of doubt this weekend, but I am convinced that God wants to meet you and he wants to be with you in the middle of the story.